Blog Talk Radio. Hello, hello. Welcome to the podcast. Boy, that music cut off a little quickly. That sounded a, a little bit abrupt. So sorry if that took you by surprise like it did me. <laughs> but I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech-language pathologist, and today we are talking about something that I rarely talk about on the podcast, and that's speech intelligibility in toddlers. And even though I talk about it uh, minimally, there are lots of folks who focus on it almost to the exclusion of other things. And as we proceed with the show today, we'll talk about why I don't think it's such a big deal for toddlers. We'll also talk about when it is a big deal. And so we'll be looking at lots of norms, lots of red flags when you think, oh boy, mm, you know, woof, this is something that we need to focus on and that we need to address and that even though this child is very, very, very young, it still becomes a priority for us right now. So we'll sort out how to determine uh, or how kind of to go through that clinical decision-making process. But we will have lots and lots of statistics and lots of evidence-based practice <laughs> guidelines for you to think about when you are deciding and determining whether speech intelligibility should be a focus for a child who is three or under. And let me just say this. If you are kind of an, an, a seasoned professional, I, I refuse to say old, but seasoned, if you have worked for a while like I have, you know, 25 years or so, when we went to grad school, if you had said, we're going to, you'll have a new client on your clinical caseload this fall, your caseload in clinic as a student, and you were go, he is two, and you were going to be working on speech intelligibility or for you parents out there, that's how understandable a kid is. Does he get all the right sounds in the right places? If you had said that to a group of us, we just would have laughed and laughed and laughed and laughed and thought, oh, she's joking. We don't work on our tick under three. But, boy, have we really, really moved that guideline back, just like we have or, or lots of people have where we're looking at younger and younger and younger ages for when we address these issues, which could be developmental. Now, what do I mean by developmental? By developmental, I mean that it's an error that most children make as they are developing, meaning that it's not uncommon for a kid to have whatever particular problem that you're trying to address. So it's sometimes I think about treating our tick in a kid who's under three sort of like teaching them to read or trying to work on teaching them to tie their shoes or teaching them something that's just developmentally out of reach or it's unrealistic. Now, that's not to say that a kid couldn't ever do it, especially with lots and lots of follow-up and reinforcement and attention from a parent and yada, yada, yada. But who has time for all that, <laughs> especially when it's not that that critical when we're looking at the overall hierarchy of what's important about language development. And again, for children who are under three, for me, the most important thing for us to remember is that language piece. And so there's a separation, there's a differentiation between speech and language. And if you are a parent and listening to this show, let's talk about those differences. Speech refers to 
the specific sounds that we use when we are forming words, when we are speaking there. So that's, again, what I referred to earlier as articulation or getting the right sounds in the right places. An intelligibility rating would be how often do we understand this child? How much of the time do we have a certainty or a very, very good idea of what he's saying, even if there are little errors present? And let me just say this, and I've already, I didn't mean to get how far are we into the show? Gosh, three or four minutes into the show before I've said this. Let me say it so in case This may be new, not new information because everybody knows this, but it is such a good reminder. Even children who are typically developing are very, very difficult to understand when they are learning how to talk. Now, sometimes I'll meet a really chatty two-year-old, and I'll listen to their speech and I'll think, oh, my goodness, you know, I can understand almost everything you say, and this is the first time I've met you. Guys, that's the exception rather than the norm. And, again, I'll give you some specifics a little bit later, but let's just kind of keep that in mind that even toddlers who don't have any difficulty at all with developing their communication skills are harder uh, harder to understand, especially for people who are unfamiliar listeners. So that would be people who've never I've known them before who haven't spent a lot of time with them. So even normal kids, even kids with normal skills can be super, super difficult if you are a new listener (laughs) to them. So let's start. Well, we started with that little point, but I want to share right from the get-go how I kind of tease out what's important and what's not. And when we would pay attention to speech intelligibility, and when we would not. And for me, the most important thing about any kid, and I don't care how old they are, but certainly for kids who are three and under, or under three if you're strictly in that birth to three or that early intervention population, but even for preschool, speech-language pathologists, who who treat three-year-olds and four-year-olds and early kindergartners, for me, language has to be near an age-appropriate level. And so I defined speech a minute ago. Let's talk about what language is. Language is your vocabulary, the words that you understand, which would be your receptive language. And then we're, we're really talking today, again, about things that are more uh, verbally uh, relative. So that would be your expressive language, what you can say. And so, again, that includes vocabulary. It includes that early grammar, which is professionals refer to that as syntax so the word order we might also think about things with language as um, including again semantics or what words mean and so does a kid just have have just a couple of little descriptive words and does he have just a handful of verbs but maybe a whole bunch of nouns that's a language problem in and of itself for kids who are you know, getting to be two and a half or so, they should have a much more diverse vocabulary than that. So I will not even think about how a kid sounds unless language is really near an age-appropriate level. So that means that for a two-year-old, a 24-month-old, a typically developing 24-month-old has 200 to 300 words in his or her vocabulary. So I'm not really going to see a kid probably at 24 months who has that many words because his parents aren't worried yet, and they shouldn't be unless there's a pretty significant difficulty understanding him or her. And at that point, again, you might might consider that, and we'll get to that a little bit later too. But, again, remember, our, our first and foremost 
guideline, our first and foremost thing that we even, uh, you know, it's not even going to be a question of whether we would think about working on speech intelligibility is unless a kid, again, has has the you know, and ex- a lot of words in his vocabulary. So he's exceeding or really, really near a normal uh, language level. And again, let's go back to that 24 month age range there. We said that typically developing 24 month olds have two to 300 words in their vocabulary. Now, if you're a therapist and you're listening and you're confused, you're thinking, well, we use the 50 word vocabulary mark. Guys, remember what our milestones. Are, are really are they're when 90% of children have achieved the particular skill by a certain age range. So 90% of typically developing two-year-olds have 50 or more words. That 50 number is actually the bottom. That's the minimal number of words that a 24-month-old should have. Now, if you're a parent listening to this and you have a late talker who says no words, that information could break your heart. And I have to re- constantly reassure parents who come into my office who say, well, you know, he's got 35 words or 40 words or whatever, and they're feeling pretty good about it. And after I pull the rug out from under their feet and say, well, you know, actually, typically developing kids have two to 300 words, and 50 is just, you know, he's close to 50, but he's not there yet. You know, that still lets us know that there's a delay. And then that's where the reassurance part comes in with, you know, but you're doing the right thing. You're getting services. This is this is where we want you. You're making fantastic decisions for your child because you're addressing this early. Um, and again, that's that's a whole language piece. So the other big marker at 24 months is that children are combining words. So I would never, ever, 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 ever work on our tick with a kid who's not doing phrases. And again, this would be certainly for kids who are older than 24 months. And I'm not even going to touch <laughs> our tick for a kid who's who's not even two yet. I mean, to me, that's that's really laughable. And I know there's some therapists who feel differently, but my philosophy is language, 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 and we're looking at communication and is he attempting, is he trying, is he getting his point across? And especially for kids who aren't even verbal yet. For our little friends who are using an augmentative system or an alternative system like signers or kids with pictures and those kinds of systems, we certainly are going to get all that going well, where where communication is just going like gangbusters before we would even think about targeting speech sounds. Another guideline that I really use is how hard do I have to work to keep them socially engaged? So if they are running away all the time or not making good eye contact or not really into me or into mom or whoever is really going to be the primary service provider here, there's no way I'm going to target articulation because they're just not developmentally ready. For kids to be able to imitate a sound, let's say that they're leaving off a sound, so they're omitting it, or let's say that they are substituting a sound, there is no way you're going to be able to get a kid to attend and change the way that he's speaking or use the correct sound if he's not even really engaged or really, really staying with you. So that's certainly right up there with, you know, are his language skills at or near an age-appropriate level, and can he stay with me? Does he pay attention? Usually here another big thing is how good are his play skills? Will he play with a variety of toys? Will he stay with a toy for more than 
a few minutes because, again, if not, that indicates that you've got many more things that you should work on rather than worrying about how easy he is to understand. We've got to get that language piece going first and that communication piece going first. Another thing that I really look at is how easily do they verbally imitate. So if I have to cue a word or a sound 85 times <laughs> before a kid will try it, there's no way <laughs> that I'm going to think about working on speech intelligibility. They're just not there yet. They're just not ready yet. So you'll do all these other things that we've talked about in all of these other shows to get their language skills moving along, to get their attention better, to improve their play skills well before you would think of targeting speech sounds with a kid like that. And so if you're a parent and you've, you're listening to this, and you're saying, yeah, but, you know, the main problem for my kid is that he tries to talk, but I don't understand what he's saying. A lot of times children who do that are really using jargon. And we just have missed that there's not a lot of, there aren't a lot of real words in there. And so somehow we think, well, if we just get the right sounds in the right place, you know, I'm just going to take him to this speech therapist, and she's just suddenly going to wave her magic speech therapy wand, and he's just going to get all his right sounds in the right places, and, you know, our problems are solved. A lot of times it's, that's not the problem. The kid knows how to talk, but it's not that he doesn't have a lot of speech sounds, because he does. If you sat there and really listened, you might say, well, that was a T, and that was an N, and I heard something like an uh or an A uh or an E, you know, and that's fine different speech sounds maybe you know and you just sit there and you really kind of listen for those specific sounds and certainly a speech pathologist would do that with taking a phonemic inventory or phonetic inventory but the kid still really isn't communicating his language isn't directed to anybody he just kind of walks around jabbering all the time and again we want kids to vocalize we need them to make noise they have to be able to produce speech sounds but if it's not directed toward anyone and if we never hear any true words and especially when there's no real evidence of intent, meaning he's looking right at you, he's pulling you toward something, he's trying his best to get your attention, he's gesturing like, hey, look up there. He's pointing to specifically what he wants and then looking back at you and then pointing. If you don't see any of that, a lot of times what that child is doing is jargon or vocal play. And, again, it's important. We have to have kids make noise. But really, that's not a speech issue. That's a language problem. You've got to get those those words. He's got to understand words. And particularly for kids, a lot of times parents will, of kids who use a lot of jargon, they'll say, you know, he's really trying to talk, and I've just got to sort these words out. And then we'll start digging a little deeper, and, and I'll say, you know, let's talk about what he understands. And, and we'll, we'll start talking about, you know, does he follow simple directions? No. Can he point to any simple pictures or familiar people or retrieve any objects that he uses all day, every day? You know, can you say, go get your cup or wear your shoes? And the child has no idea what you're talking about or we don't see any evidence that he's trying to follow those commands. Guys, Again, that's receptive language, and that's a much bigger issue than trying to fix getting the right sounds in the right places. But sometimes parents don't understand that. They think, he's trying to talk. This certainly is just limited to a speech problem. And then therapists really have to talk about the differences between speech and language and how we sort out all of those issues and how, again, we even get all the way back to that social engagement or attention piece with, you know, he's not even really directing all of that 
all of his vocalizations or, or jabbering or whatever a parent might call it, he's not directing that toward anybody, and that's a much, 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 much bigger, more global problem than how well we understand him. So again, if you're a speech pathologist or a developmental interventionist or an OT or whoever you are listening to this show, you've got to be able to explain that to parents, and you've got to be really, really direct and really honest when you're explaining that because parents do not get it. I've had parents kind of therapist shop, meaning that, you know, my practice is different now and that... um, these last few years, not so much right now, but these last few years when we had our private clinic open and sometimes I would see children who had seen lots of other therapists and the parent would just say, you know, he's just talking a blue streak now, but no, I still can't understand what he's saying. He's been in therapy for, you know, eight months or a year or whatever and, you know, we're trying really hard to get him to say words like bubble and book and you know, really, really functional words, but I can't hear any of that. I think the therapist might be working on stuff that's way too easy, or they'll come to me and they'll say things like, you know, she's really trying to get him to sit down, but I can tell that he's really trying to talk, so I wish that she would work on higher-level things because he's just, she's still trying to get him to pay attention to her and sit and do these baby toys, and I just don't get it. And there's a real disconnect there, and I'll say, you know, that therapist is right. <laughs> she's working on the right things. And here's why. Here's why he's not ready to work on that speech intelligibility piece. And they'll, it's like the light bulb goes off, and they'll, or, or sometimes they're disappointed because the therapist has really explained that to them, but they just haven't been ready to hear it. They've needed someone else with, with you know, bigger guns and a fancy website and who's written some books <laughs> to kind of be able to confirm their their suspicions or what their therapist has told them week after week after week after week, which is he's not developmentally ready. He, you think he's further along than where he really is, and let's look at what's really, really going on here. So you have to be super, super objective and honest when you're a therapist having these conversations. And, again, it's hard to do sometimes. You feel as a therapist, especially a younger therapist, and especially if you don't have kids yet, you might feel real intimidated by some of these conversations and feel like, you know, oh, well, this mom knows more than me and maybe he real about him, and she always does, and she should. She's the mom. You only see him a little bit, and she lives with them. She birthed that child. And so you kind of get intimidated sometimes to think, well, maybe, maybe I've missed something. Maybe he is different when I'm not here. Maybe he is able to do these things that she thinks that he can do that I have seen no inkling that he can do these things, and I've I've seen him for six weeks straight. And so, again, you have to get some confidence and be able to defend your positions here and be able to say this is how I know what I know what I know and this is what I'm seeing with your child and really be able to explain it in a way that makes sense to a parent that's not offensive, that's not heartbreaking and gut-wrenching, although sometimes even with our best intentions with therapists, we deliver the worst news ever, and we are trying our very best to make it as palpable as we can for a parent, but they're still going to be hurt because we're talking about their baby. And again, if you're a mom and if you're a therapist who has children, you know how sensitive we are about our own kids. And I've shared over and over and over on this show, you may be sick to death of hearing it, but our oldest son had a really significant learning disability, and it just broke my heart every single time 
I had to go to a meeting about him or got a call about him or when I approached a teacher. You know, it just did because they are our flesh and blood, and we, we just live and die through our kids. And so, again, we have to be so sensitive to that when we're sharing information, but at the same time be really, really honest, especially in these situations where a parent thinks that a child developmentally is much, much further along, and when a parent really doubts what your treatment priorities are, you've got to be able to defend that and talk about why you're working on what you're working on. Now, in some state programs, I hope it's not this way anymore, but, boy, I've been places and, you know, taught a course live or given a presentation, and they'll say, you know, our state early intervention program, the parents write the goals. And so when we get in there and they say, you know, I want to be able to understand my kid half the time, that's what we have to work on. And that's what I'm going to work on because it says it on the IFSP. That's crazy, guys. <laughs> that's where you have or whoever did that initial evaluation really missed the boat in explaining what's truly going on with the child. And in a lot, of, a lot of cases I've just said to parents, look, we need to start over. This document is not relative. Or we'll get to this goal, but it's a long-term goal. That's not what we're ready to work on right now. Right now we've got to work on language and you're trying to work on speech. And so that's how you would kind of start that, that guideline or that conversation about that using the guidelines that we'll discuss. But, again, I, I, I wanted to start the show with those real-life practical things that we should be thinking about as speech-language pathologists and other early interventionists, you know, when is working on articulation appropriate? When is targeting speech intelligibility really a big deal? So let's now kind of move to the data, to the evidence-based practice portion here. And again, let me say, if you are a person who's a real stickler and you want to see the written references, for um, all of this information, this is pulled from but updated from my course, Early Speech-Language Development, Taking Theory to the Floor. And all my courses are on sale right now for 20% off. You can enter the coupon code, the number 20, and then the word OFF there in the coupon code section and save yourself 20% on, on those courses. And, again, early speech language development is a super course because it walks you through this treatment hierarchy with kids, meaning speech intelligibility is last. We would not work on speech intelligibility until language is fully established, and you're not going to work on or the expressive language part until receptive language skills are are moving along. And again, if a kid's receptive language skills aren't moving along, we know that we've got to look at his cognition and how he plays and those things. And before we even get to that, he's got to be interactive with us and socially engaged. And so again, that if we walk through that whole hierarchy, we start at the bottom though with the social piece and then move all the way through the Arctic piece. It's a great course. It's 12 hours on DVD. A lot of states just require 15 hours to a lot of therapists, or some states are even lower than that at a 12-hour, and they'll say, you know, you were, this course was my entire CEU um, allotment this year, but, boy, it covered everything. And so if you need those specific resources and written references, get that course because it's uh, all right there and laid out for you. So let's look, first of all, at what's normal. At what age should we understand what percentage and so for kids who are not yet two, so kids at that 19, 18, 19 to 24-month level, normal kids, kids who are functioning in that, that 
range of normal development, meaning typically developing kids, parents usually under, only understand 25 to 50%. So by the time we get to that second birthday, you know, we're singing that song, you know, happy birthday to you. Parents still only understand about 50% of what a kid says, and that's for a kid, again, with normal skills. By the time a kid is three, so between two and three years, that bumps on up to 75%. And again, remember, this is for familiar listeners, listeners that know this kid. So parents, older siblings, grandparents, neighbors. If you live in a neighborhood where everybody sees and plays with and interacts with all the kids in the neighborhood, a mom who's lived next door to a kid for, you know, all three years of their life should understand about 75% of what they say by three. Four to five years bumps up to 75 to 90%, and we don't really look for 100% intelligibility until a kid is over five. So 90 to 100% at five-plus years, even though a kid may still have some articulation errors. So they may, may still, let's say, a classic example is they, they don't have their R yet. They're still using a W for R substitution. And, you know, or, or um, you know, there's a lisp there. But you can still understand what they're saying even though those little articulation errors are present. And, frankly, some adults still have some of those issues. You know, you'll hear an interview on CNN and <laughs> – You'll hear an adult with a bad R. And, again, as a parent, you may not even think about those things or hear those things, but if you're a speech therapist, I bet you do. I bet you'll be doing something just really um, not even paying too much attention to the TV, and then you'll hear uh, a speaker whose R is not uh, crisp, and you'll, or, again, a lisp or something that's pretty – or there, some other substitution. I heard a guy a few months ago that had a terrible L – and I don't even do our tick all the time, but our ears kind of perk up when we hear that stuff because it's different. And sometimes as a, a non-professional, you may think, well, that person sounds different, but you can't quite put your finger on what the error is. But if you're an SLP like me, I bet you notice it. So, again, back to little ones, that age range there, it's pretty generous. And sometimes when I tell parents that, too, they'll really kind of complain, or especially a parent who their kid's not in therapy, but they're kind of worried about them. And it might be a parent that just kind of tracks you down, and they know you're that speech lady, and they'll say, you know, I only understand my kid half the time. I I, I just, gosh, I, I might not even get half of it. And I'll say, how old is she? And you know, you know, she's precious. How old is she? Is she, how, you know, and I'm looking at her and she'll say, oh, she's not going to be two till the fall. And I just kind of want to, you know, roll my eyes and walk away, but you can't do that. <laughs> you know, when you say, that's normal, she's fine, she's fine. We should only understand about a quarter to a half, and she's well within that normal range. And, again, sometimes they'll have an older child whose speech sound systems have matured much, much earlier than kind of the average toddler, so you'll have to really reassure a parent that everything is moving along. All right, and remember, too, that almost every child, when they're beginning to speak, uses some speech sound substitutions. And so let's talk about, again, what are some guidelines that we can use for when most kids have mastered a specific speech sound? And let me just say that any kid, here, here's your biggest, here's your first red flag. Any kid who doesn't have a lot of consonant sounds is really, really hard to understand. Now, if you're a parent, 
remember that, you know, our vowels are A-E-I-O-U and sometimes Y. You know, that's kind of our oldest guideline to use, and we're not going to be a lot more technical than that for the audience for this show. So any of those other sounds, you know, go through the alphabet. A B would be a consonant. A C would be a consonant. A D would be a consonant. And remember that vowels can have lots of different sounds, and even sometimes consonants have different sounds too, you know, like G-H sometimes represents an F sound, it's not always a G, and some sounds are silent, so kind of think about that, but if you're just really sort of analyzing what your child does and you hear a lot of, those are kids who don't have a lot of consonants, just really, really limited use of those other sounds they're speaking predominantly with vowels and vowels do emerge first and so that's why a lot of our kids with speech delays meaning that they've got some sounds and they're trying really really hard to talk but just their little sound system has not matured enough yet so again that would that would be a kid who's who's trying they know they should talk they are are using <laughs> every resource available to them but for whatever reason, whatever, and again, there are lots of diagnoses that we'll hopefully I think we'll discuss in a week or so. On uh, This is probably going to be a speech intelligibility series, but we'll talk about some specific diagnoses tied to these red flags. But for now, just kind of know that a kid who's not using a lot of consonant sounds by 18 months, um, that that's out of the norm. Let's look at the specific number. It's children produce three to six different consonant sounds by 18 months. And now, again, this is where we kind of come into those sayings that we all say every kid is different or, you know, you can't really compare kids. They all develop at their own pace. This is I, I have some problems with those kinds of statements because I do believe that there are general broad patterns of development that we look for and that if a kid, you know, kids can have individual variations, but if they are differing wildly from those patterns, we know that that's more likely a disorder, meaning that the, the sequence is off or they're, they're way under what we would expect. And so, again, for a child who's about one and a half, we should hear at least three different consonant sounds and the, the, what the sounds are that would be the variability piece children might have a little different consonant inventory from child to child but you want to hear at least that many sounds now by that second birthday we want that to increase a little bit so that a child would use at least six to eight different consonant sounds and here's where we start to kind of think about our vowels too vowels should be really firmly established and in the right place by 24 months so a kid would produce most vowel sounds correctly and have at least six to eight different consonant sounds now let me give you the list of the most familiar or routine sounds that a child would produce correctly at least in the initial positions in words by the time they're 24 months and again for parents the initial position is just the first sound in the word so getting the first sound right and that would be our lip sounds so p b or m's and those are what speech language pathologists refer to as bilabials meaning that we use by or two of our lips labials, that those sounds typically emerge first, so P, B, and M, and then T, D, and N, so the alveolar sounds, the consonant sounds that are made in the middle of the mouth, 
H is another sound that children typically produce by 24 months, the sound at the beginning of the word. You really don't hear an H at the end for parents that if we have an H at the end of a word as we spell it, it's silent. And then by 24 months, it's kids who are developing typically will have K and G or the pharyngeal sounds at the beginnings of words. Now, again, a lot of speech pathologists hear that and kind of freak out a little bit because we've learned that it's okay if kids don't have those pharyngeal consonants, Ks and Gs, until they're closer to three. And, again, this is our same discussion we had a few minutes ago about milestones that typically developing kids, most kids will have that K and G sound if they're not having any, any difficulty in the beginnings of words at 24 months, but it's not outside the range of normal not to get it until that third birthday, so 36 months. So, again, that's where that variability piece comes in. Between 24 and 36 months, we want kids to acquire those pharyngeal consonants of that K and G, too. Some kids really will do final sounds or sounds at the ends of words um, when they're just turning two. And, again, if you're an SLP, you may be gasping, but remember we're talking about Normal kids, kids with normally typically developing skills, not not our, our sweet little late talkers that we all live and breathe for. Uh, but those final sounds that typically come in first are the bilabials, you know, P and M, and then N, our nasal sounds, as well. Uh, so remember your big guideline here is you want to have six to eight different consonant sounds and then produce most vowel sounds correctly. By 28 months, so a couple of months later, our researchers differ a little bit. Some sources don't put D in until 28 months, and I think that's late. I agree with the data that's more likely a 24, before 24-month sound. But a lot of sources have that um, an F and then the consonant Y when it's produced Y like yes comes in then. And then the final sounds that emerge are S, D, so S, D, K, and F, and then ing. So by 28 months, by 32 months, they're adding the initial W or W, and then final sounds will add the T and the B as well. And then 36 months, an initial S, final sounds, L is emerging there, um, the pharyngeal consonant at the end with a G, and then our um, versions of R there for our kids who aren't having any of those articulation issues. And again, by three, the number of consonants that we want them to have would be 9 to 12. So that's what our experts say, that that's when 75% of children have mastered speech sounds. And again, if you're an SLP, you may be hearing that in your head spinning a little bit because the data or the milestones that we use on our articulation or phonological test might differ a little bit. But remember, we're looking at when that full range of normal, when kids have developed those sounds. So that's why there's the differentiation there. We're really kind of looking at averages uh, when we are looking at, again, when 75% of kids have mastered those sounds. All right, that was kind of a blur, but remember our big things are that we want to hear lots of consonant sounds by three, and the number that we're hearing there is nine to 12 consonant sounds. Back it back down for 24 months, we want to hear six to eight different consonant sounds, and again, vowels in the right places. And then if you want to go under two at 18 months, kids need three to six different consonant sounds, although there's some variation of what those would be. All right, so that's kind of normal. Let's talk about what's not normal. 
as far as speech sound development goes. When do we worry? And again, remember at the beginning of the show when I was saying, well, I'm not going to work on articulation with a kid unless their language skills are in place and unless their social skills are moving along and their cognitive skills are moving along. And remember, we measure cognition by play. Those are kind of our, you know, and certainly receptive language is part of language with that. But we want to make sure all of those pieces are in place. Beyond that, one thing that I forgot to say is it would also be that a child is falling outside of what would be expected for a kid who's typically developing. So what about his speech beyond the percentages? You know, is there, is he not meeting the, you know, understand 50% of what he can say, 50 to 75% between two and three? You know, is he understood less of that time? And if the answer is yes, that certainly might be justification for working on articulation. But more often than not, we want to use something a little bit more specific. So let me give you these red flags for articulation skills. And, guys, I've used these for a long time. This data is actually from a study from 1994, and it so holds true for me clinically. Maybe sometime I'll get an updated reference. <laughs> but for right now, boy, this is the one I'm clinging to and holding to because it, in my opinion, is the very best list that I've ever seen. So when would we really know, even for a two-year-old, when is articulation a problem? And when should we really, really, really pay attention to this? And when should, even if language skills aren't quite where we want them, but we just our heart of hearts is telling us, gosh, this artic thing, man, I better take a closer look. What are the real red flags? What's really, really going to let you know that, hey, this is not as expected and this is something that should be bumped on up the priority list? When kids are making errors with vowels rather than consonants, we should really, really pay attention. And remember what we said about vowels before and for parents, that's the A-E-I-O-U and sometimes Y. <laughs> and remember there are long vowel sounds and short vowel sounds, and there are diphthongs when vowel sounds are combined to um, when you're spelling them. And there's certainly different, you know, A, again, we talked about the long and short, but there are many, many different ways to pronounce the, the, the letter A as it's spelled in different words. We want kids, though, to have mastered nearly all of those vowel sounds by age two. Now, some errors are still acceptable at age two, but by age three, if we have a kid who's 30 months, 33 months, and he's still only using one or two vowel sounds, say he has an uh, and so for a word like, let's just take an example like, um, let's say he only uses uh, and he tries to say buh, and that means bubble, that means book, that means bed, that means bottle, <laughs> that means uh, boat, um, you know, that means bee, he's seeing a bumblebee and he's saying ba ba, but he uses that uh for everything, he doesn't have, can you see how a vowel error would be a really detrimental uh, mistake for him to make when he's talking because his parents get that he's trying to say something and they hear that word that starts with the B, but they can't get anything beyond that because his vowel system is really um, underdeveloped. And so in those specific cases, that's when you think, man, I've got to get him some more vowels. We've got to really target these vowels here. And so that might be a, an indicator for a therapist to 
bump that priority up. Now, let me just kind of say vowels are hard to work on. When I went to school back in the 80s and early 90s, we didn't really even target vowel sounds with kids. We didn't really work on that. Thank goodness our methods for treatment and our focuses have evolved, but it's still pretty darn hard to teach vowel sounds in the same, you know, we have tons and tons and tons of strategies for getting uh, facilitating consonant sounds, but not so much for vowels, or we didn't. And so, again, it's hard. And so you may have a therapist as a parent who is sort of scratching her head a little bit, and you're wondering, well, why is she having such a hard time coming up with how to work on this sound? Because she seems to know what she's doing. If it's a P or a B or an M or a T or a D or an N, or even those K's and G's or an S, she knows what to do there. I don't understand what the problem is. It's because a lot of times our education, especially when we were initially trained, didn't really teach us those things. So we've had to go back and learn some other methods. But again, as a therapist, I want you to pay particular attention to children who have limited vowel repertoires. We've got to get them some more vowel sounds. So that's certainly when we would think about working on articulation with a kid who's not yet three because we're hearing these numerous vowel errors. Another really big red flag for articulation problems is kids who don't use a lot of consonant sounds. We've already talked about this, but especially when they don't use consonants at the beginnings of words. And so remember what we said a minute ago, about 18 months, we want kids to have three to six different consonant sounds in about 24 months. And this was for typically developing children. In about 24 months, the typically developing children would have six to eight different consonant sounds. So if a kid is two and you're not hearing at least three to four, so we've backed that number down, meaning that, okay, this is kind of the bottom range of normal here to only have three to four different consonant sounds, you know, maybe I need to focus on articulation and help him acquire some more sounds to pick from so that he's he's t trying to talk a lot, but he doesn't, you know, he doesn't have a lot to work with here. No wonder he's hard to understand. No wonder he is frustrated and his parents are pulling their hair out but and are super, super worried about him. And we've got to get him some different sounds here. So if a kid doesn't have at least three to four different consonant sounds at the beginning of the word by the time they're two, we really, really worry about that. By three, they should have that large repertoire of initial sounds. And remember, typically developing kids will have nine to 12 sounds. So I would say there's not really a number here from this from the Stoll Gammon study, but the guideline that I use is uh, again really close to that. Uh, a little, say six to eight by three. They've got to have. I want the bilabials coming in. I want my alveolars in the T, D, and N. And again, M's and N's are those names kind of overlap if we sort of think about how we group sounds. So I want those six consonants firmly established. And I've got to hear at least an attempt with a pharyngeal consonant, that K and G, and certainly that H and W at the beginning. Those are the ones that I really, really target. And remember, the main reason that we're looking at getting those initial consonants in or those consonants at the beginnings of words is research tells us that we should highly suspect a motor speech disorder, which would be apraxia, or a phonological disorder, which would be a more language-based or auditory processing speech um, problem, 
when uh, we're not hearing lots of different constant sounds by the time they're three. All right, another big red flag for articulation skills are kids who are backers, meaning they usually substitute consonant sounds that are made at the backs of their mouths, so K's and G's, or even an H, the for a variety of consonant sounds. And again, why, why is that a bigger deal? Why is it a bigger deal for them to be backers? It's because it's atypical phonological development. Those bilabials and alveolars, the front and the middle sounds develop first in kids with normal speech sound development. So when we hear a kid who's just doing a lot of sounds at the back of their mouth, that, that's just a red flag because it's not how it typically comes in. So it's something that's unusual that we have to pay attention to, and that pattern really should be targeted even in two-year-olds because we know that a lot of times there's um, a muscle tone issue involved. Let's say that they've had low muscle tone and they've done, spent a lot, of times on their, a lot of time on their back as infants, and so those K's and G sounds are kind of overdeveloped because their parents maybe didn't do a lot of tummy time or for whatever reason couldn't really flip over. And, again, it's usually related to it's, – it's not – I'm not trying to blame a parent. It's not an environmental problem. It's that the child had a neurological issue that made muscle tone um, with, on that low low range. And so, naturally, that tongue just fell back into their, their throats, and so that's what they got when they tried to produce sound. And so we do want to target that because, again, it's so different from what we hear in typical development. And again, another red flag, the last one here from the Stolen Gaiman study that so many therapists use is uh, if kids still aren't doing final consonant sounds after the third birthday, that we would really pay attention to that because that is a big factor in intelligibility too. And let me just say... This is really, really where I'm kind of a stickler. I really think about that third birthday as a developmental third birthday rather than a chronological third birthday, meaning that I want kids using sentences all the time and producing multisyllabic words, and they have just hundreds and hundreds of words before I would worry too much about those final consonants. Uh, because that is a pattern that, again, if we're looking strictly at early intervention in toddlers, that will come in later. And, I, again, I just can't tell you the number of times that therapists will try to consult with me about a kid or talk to me about a kid, and they'll say, I'm not moving on to phrases yet because with language because this child doesn't have final consonants. And I always say, why are you worried about articulation first? Why are you prioritizing a speech goal over a language goal? And they'll say, it's because he's so hard to understand. And then I'll start to ask questions and say, tell me how many initial consonants he uses. And more often than not, he has fewer initial consonants than he should use. And so they're kind of working on goals out of order. Uh, or, or there are vowel errors that are present too, but they're kind of focused on and hyper-focused on that, that final consonant deletion pattern. And as therapists, we can kind of think about why that would be. I mean, that's really drilled in our heads in grad school. You know, final consonant deletion, final consonant deletion, final consonant deletion. And sometimes it's sort of all we know to work on. When I've just given you that whole list of things that should come first. And so I don't really work on a lot of final consonants again until after a kid is well over three. And certainly um, talking very, very, very well, lots of 
lots of sentences so that language is just not an issue for those kinds of kids. So here's what we're going to do. We spent some time today talking about what's normal. We spent some time, you know, again, looking at those percentages of when we should understand children, how often we should understand them, by what age range. I talked about the guidelines that are important for me. I've mentioned that several times now, and I do want to drill it in your head. Language is near an age-appropriate level. They're socially engaged. I don't have to do cartwheels and, you know, the big Laura show to get them to pay attention. <laughs> they're staying with me or their moms. They're engaged with their moms. Attention is not a problem. We are not chasing this kid around, begging him to sit down. You know, this is a, we're not going to work on our tick with those kinds of busy kids. They're not ready. We have other things that we should work on. And kids who imitate verbally really easily, meaning that I cue it and they give that sound back to me or they try their very best. You know, those were the guidelines that are important to me. We also talked a lot about what's normal or when 75% of kids have mastered specific speech sounds, all those that information I gave you about consonants and vowels. Let's leave it there for today because I do want to share treatment strategies and what, again, using kind of our priority approach, you know, we talked about the red flags with, okay, when might we consider working on articulation with a two-year-old, you know, numerous vowel errors, leaves off a lot of beginning sounds or maybe a kid who substitutes a lot of those back sounds. There are things that then after we've decided with that information, okay, this is a legitimate need, this is something that developmentally we're not going to be able to move along with, or the kid is super frustrated or the parent is just really can't understand anything and there's some relationship issues developing because, you know, she, mom's trying and he's trying and there's just a big disconnect here and I've, I've got to get him more intelligible so that things go a little bit better dynamic-wise and it's just not so frustrating for either the kid or the parent all day, every day with communication efforts. And so beyond that, I want to give you some information about, okay, I know that's a problem. What do I do? How do I work on it? How do I fix it? And we'll talk about first targets for kids that we've decided that we'll prioritize uh, working on articulation with, but we only have about 10 more minutes in the show. And so it's too complex, too much information to start on today. So we're going to let this show be it for today. So this will indeed turn out to be maybe a three or four part series with speech intelligibility and toddlers. So I hope that you've gotten that initial information and I've given you some things to kind of chew on and think about and digest. Uh, between now and next time. And remember, again, if you want the written resources for all of this and want to see the specific guidelines in black and white, this is so hard sometimes if, as you're listening to a show like this. And I've got a couple of podcasts that I listen to, <coughs> excuse me, that aren't, aren't related to speech at all, just other kind of hobbies or life interests or whatever I'm dealing with. And sometimes they'll say something and I'll think, man, where is that written down? You know, or I'll listen while I'm driving. And I, I kind of go into, you know, I want to sort of slam my car in park and, you know, back up and listen to what she said again and try to get it all down. You don't have to do that with this. These, this information is in my course, Early Speech Language Development, Taking Theory to the Floor. So if you're super into this and want more information, order the course. And you can get it and certainly get those uh, resources too. All right, so that's all for today. Next week we're going to pick back up with 
first targets for toddlers with unintelligible speech. So have a great week, and we'll get back up next time. Thanks so much. Bye-bye.